last week we talked about the importance of being careful what you teach because someone might just learn that thing. If you didn't see that video, you could hit this link right here to go watch that, pause this, do that first, and then come back. But in the meantime, let's jump into how we go about teaching the right thing. What's up, I'm Ken. This is Kenfu TV, and each week I release videos in the martial arts, philosophy, technique, training, that sort of thing. So that's the kind of thing you're into. I hope that you stick around. I hope that you subscribe. I hope you share this with someone you think might enjoy it or needs to hear it. But mostly, I just hope that this lands somewhere for you and then it gets you thinking and that it's useful to you. The previous week's videos are also released on Spotify and other places that you can catch podcasts if you want to listen to this in an audio format if you prefer it that way. And lastly, I have another series called Dojo Sessions, which is actual training kind of stuff, technique-based stuff, kata application, karate, jiu-jitsu, eskrima, different ways of handling weapons and dealing with things on the ground, concepts, philosophies, and just how I approach the things that I talk about. Me putting my money where my mouth is, so to speak. If you want to look into that stuff, there'll be a playlist in the video description below and at the end of this video. Okay, so we've realized that it's important that we make sure that we are teaching the right things, that we are vetting the stuff that we teach so that we don't teach someone inappropriately or worse yet, get somebody hurt, that it should weigh on us the importance of being accurate and appropriate with the things that we share. So let's talk about how we go about doing that. The first seems obvious, but maybe it isn't, and that's to do the homework, do the research. I spoke last week about the fact that when someone comes in to train with you, that there's already an implicit trust, and if they feel like that trust is confirmed when they get on the mat, that that trust becomes all-encompassing. Well, the truth is, we were one of those people at some point, too. We walked onto the mat. We felt like there was a reason why this person had this place. We wanted to check it out. We trained them a little bit. We realized that it was a place we wanted to continue to train, that we trusted what they had to say. We took it on good faith that everything that they were giving us was valid and appropriate, and that everything was given to them was valid and appropriate. And then we continued to pass that on. So if we're in this place, then it's because we understand exactly what I'm talking about. We've already done it. And other people are showing up and doing it with us. So first and foremost, the most important thing is that we have to question everything. We have to spend time understanding it, making sure that we know why things work, how things work, where they came from, what was the context of the culture and, and the environment at that time in history when those things were developed and why they were taught the way that they were taught and why people believed the things that they believed about them. If we don't do that research, then we don't truly know. We're just taking it on faith that that this thing is appropriate and that the context that we learned it in has proven that it has value. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a video I'll link right here of my five-way filter that I use for this. Now, that's not something I'm trying to sell you. That's just a thing that I do. I pass everything through a five-way filter of the language, the environment, the culture, the history, and the tools. I think that when you start to appropriately understand all of these individual things, that you start to get an understanding and a better grasp of where things fit and where things don't. If that environment dictated that you do a thing a certain way, but you aren't in that environment, then it's possible that you don't need to do it that way and that it's not even the best way to do it for the environment you're in. So that's an example of how paying attention to that could change whether or not you should retain something, preserve it how it is, or change it. That's 
something you got to pay attention to. So that's how I approach researching and understanding as I pass things through this filter of the different things. Do I understand what the words even meant? Sometimes I've had techniques taught to me that when I learn what the words mean, I realize that's not even the right thing. It's like actually exactly opposite of what that word implies is happening. And then you go do some research and find out, yep, that word described exactly, especially when you look at Japanese language and things like that. They're very clear. The, the words sound really cool, but they're just very direct, and they say exactly what they are. So take the time to understand the language, and you'll have an understanding of, of whether or not the description of those words matches the action that you're performing. While you're researching, ask yourself the questions. If I can understand how this technique works, why it works, how it fit into that environment and that situation or that time, and I can see how all of it fits together... And I can compare that to my situation, the way that I'm proposing that I teach it, the way that I propose that you learn it, the way that we deal with things in the society that we live in, and we can determine, do these things line up and do they, do they transfer over or do they not? Because if they do not, well, it's not that you have to get rid of it, maybe. It might just need to be modified. I know it's sacrilege to modify things, but it's okay to do so. The times change the world changes, surely the martial arts must change too. Funakoshi Gichin, he was wise when he said those words because it's the truth. What was true in his time is not true in my time, so the way that he did a certain technique might not make sense for me to do it in that way now, or it might just not even be applicable at all. Pitch it, teach a different thing that is more appropriate to that circumstance. Next up, context. Understand the context of what you're teaching. If the technique you're teaching is sport-based, then make sure that you adequately describe it in its sport context. They just call it out. Just explain, this is a sport technique. This is for when you're sparring. This is when you're fighting. If you want to go and be a fighter, then this is something that you might want to be good at. Here's how it works, and here's why it works in that context. Bonus points if you go ahead and, and include things like, here's when it wouldn't work in a different context. Here's an example of that context and why parts of it wouldn't be appropriate and why it might not be the best choice. Do the same thing for self-defense. Do the same thing for just the art, and do the same thing for the health and, and wellness and just biomechanical stuff. Make sure you explain the context. Help your students understand the idea of contexts and how to process whether or not something belongs here or there, or if it belongs in both, or how it fits. The better they get at determining that, the better they will be. The better you will have prepared them to be able to process new information that they get, even if they're not getting it from you. It's important that we build them to be learners because that's how they process and become better. We want to keep them safe. This is how we do it. When you're looking at whether or not something is safe to do, we talked about just the chance of injury. If people don't know how to do a thing or aren't prepared for it, that they could injure themselves even right there on your mat. That also is something that comes down to understanding things more thoroughly and knowing where the, the injuries could take place. Develop a good first aid knowledge. Develop a good basis of understanding of how the human body works and what its functions are. Like, honestly, I think some of the best training you can get as a martial artist is in the, in the realms of physical therapy, personal training, and first aid. Those areas help you understand things so much more thoroughly in just keep people safe, but also how to do them effectively. If I know how the body works when it tries to do this action, then I can make you better at doing this action. Or I can take that knowledge of how the body works and say, here's how you would leverage that and use and take advantage of that in order to hurt somebody. And point things like arm bars, understanding the arm likes to bend this way, doesn't like to bend that way. So if we extend that, 
that's going to be it, right? That's a simple one, but there are many. And the more we understand the body, the more we understand how to apply things efficiently, apply things really well, but also to make sure that we understand where they could go wrong. And then also how to make sure that we can perform our own things safely and not put ourselves in a place of injury. It's also important that we vet things. That not only do we need to research and understand how things work, we need to determine the context of things one and two, understand it, research it, know more about it, and then apply its context, understand the context that you're trying to use it for, and then build a scenario that allows you to test that and make sure that it would actually work in that way when people are animated or make sure, you know, there's a lot of things that are pain compliant based. And I, I have this saying that if it has to be felt to be functional, then it's not. And that's because of the fact that there are many things that rely on pain. And then in those moments, somebody might not be processing pain the same way. Hey, they could just be a person who that level of pain doesn't really bother them. It could be a person who has a chemical influence that's affecting their ability to perceive pain. And then there's just the body's natural chemical influence under stress or duress or adrenaline or things where it starts to include other chemicals to, to help protect itself. And some of that is to make sure the whole span of survival, that if you could be distracted by pain, you might not be able to survive. So that's a thing that it, the body does for you. So there's a little bit of going back to understanding the body. So if a technique is based entirely on pain and you can teach it in a context where everybody's nice and relaxed and you can just show them how this hurts and that's the only way you ever do it, you might never realize that on somebody who's not perceiving that pain, it might not work. My response to that is it needs to be functional without the pain. If it manipulates your body's structure, Maybe, for example, you can take different types of arm bars and things that they hurt a lot, and that's what like motivates people to move. But if that arm bar applies leverage to the body and the body's structure in a way that affects them, even if they don't feel it, it's still effective, then that's a good technique. That's a technique that's going to continue to succeed, even if the pain isn't felt. Once you start vetting techniques, creating scenarios that you can test them and make sure that they work, training them live against people who are resisting, right? Um... Ian Abernathy has this excellent four-step plan, the way he approaches kata, learning the solo form, learning its applications, learning the ability, the principles enough to adapt and vary, and then training it live with somebody resisting. That last step is such a critical step. If you're not tra training it with somebody who's going to try to make sure that you never accomplish it, then you're not going to learn how to accomplish it against somebody who doesn't want it done to them. That does not mean throw out any technique that somebody can resist. That live training needs to be somewhat spontaneous. We've all been on the mat and trained with someone where we're doing a technique, that person knows what technique we're doing and they resist it in the exact way that it needs to be resisted. That's useful, but it's also not useful. It's good to know how to, how to resist that. It's good if you can accomplish it even if they're doing that, great. But the truth is maybe, maybe not. Maybe the fact that it needs to come from somewhere else, you know, we're not going to be dealing with people who know what we're about to do. So being able to leverage things is more likely to succeed if we train them in a spontaneous way. Whereas we are doing different types of sparring, not just generally long range, long distance sparring. I don't think that that's a good context for things like self-defense. Training in a sparring way where you're grappling and fighting and working. And then you find out if you can apply that technique, you train it enough that when that context happens, that trigger takes place, that you can slide into that place and do it, and they didn't see it coming or couldn't respond fast enough because they didn't, you didn't create a situation where it was known that it was coming. That's more important, understanding how to transition from one thing to another thing to make something more successful. Jiu-Jitsu does this fantastically, setting up a thing that you might accomplish, but knowing the ways that someone might try to deal with it and then knowing how to attack those things too is a perfect way to approach 
how to make sure that your techniques are effective. If you can put them in that kind of context and they still work, then you know that you've got good technique. If you just can't land it forever, then maybe more research is needed. You need to research and understand more about how that thing works to see if it can work, or you decide whether or not it's worth that energy and maybe you stop teaching it or you kind of gloss over it a little bit and don't spend a lot of effort on it. It becomes one of your low percentage things. Vetting technique in this way and determining is incredibly important. Explaining the context in which it does and does not work is incredibly important. That leads you into the great cull where you start culling techniques out. And that leads me back to things that fall into a low priority or a low success rate situation. Understanding that something has a low success rate and explaining that and, and teaching other things, prioritizing things that are more likely to work first and more frequently, but then exposing people, especially if they've been training for a while, to things that kind of go outside of that is okay. And know that. Know that it's okay to do those things. You don't have to just never teach that. Maybe they'll be really good at it. Maybe something you're not even very good at, but the success rate for them, the percentage is higher. Great. Let them, let them do it. Make sure they understand it. Just make sure that you explain why it's important that they prioritize other things and that they understand why this is likely to fail and the things that might have to take place in order for it to succeed, and then build a context that lets you to train it, but knowing that the emphasis should still always be on something more likely to succeed is incredibly valuable, and it's something that you've got to make sure you're spending time on explaining, making sure they understand. In some ways, this also, all of this context stuff also implies that you need to determine your context, the context that you're going to use, the one that's going to make sense to you that you're going to apply kind of everything from. If you do that, then you can better select the things that you should teach, the ways that you should teach them, the ways they should be drilled or sparred, and the scenarios that you can build around them. That thing is a lot easier to accomplish if you know what your goals are. You are clearly defined whether or not you are heading towards those goals or deviating off. It is okay to deviate off. I sometimes still teach technique that's more fun from a sporting context or a sparring context. I just make sure that I take the time to explain, hey, this is something that's really good for sparring, or this is something that you're more likely to do this, or you wouldn't really do this outside of sparring because people aren't likely to behave this way, where they do very often if you're kind of at that long-range distance thing or, or whatever. Making sure that it's understood and helping people build the process of determining for themselves their own understanding, is this in this context or that context or that context, is hugely important. And the better that they understand how to do that themselves, the more they will vet the things that you're giving to them, and they will make sure that they just categorize them appropriately. They, don't, they won't be upset that you gave it to them. Well, our context is this. Why did you give me that technique? Instead, they'll just file it away in the appropriate place. It also helps make sure that, that if your goal... For example, I use this example a lot because it's my example. If my goal is self-protection, but 90% of what I train is competitive sparring based, then I am doing you a disservice by training you heavily for one thing and telling you that I'm training you for another thing. That's the byproduct myth. That's the idea that if you train this, you will naturally be good at that. That's not how it works. You might have things overlap. You might have things transfer and you might be really good at transferring skills. But that does not mean that those skills will transfer. It does not mean that you are setting someone up for success. And it definitely means that of the time you are given, you are using very little of it for your goal. And then you get a choice. Then you get to choose either I'm going to restructure what I'm teaching to match my goal, or I'm going to restructure my goal to match what I'm teaching. 
Either way, maybe just make sure that you're on track with that. For a really good reference to this concept, check out Ian Abernathy's Marshall Map. Um, I like it so much, I'm going to hang one in the dojo. I think it's really, really important, and I want to be able to literally have something to physically point at. And maybe I'll do a video discussing... Uh, my thoughts on the Marshall map here in the near future. So that's it. Those are a lot of the feelings that I have, things that you could maybe do to be more successful at teaching the right things, to feel more confident in what you're sharing with people. I feel like I probably forgot something kind of hit uh, what my students call the avatar state, where it's just kind of like pumping information as fast as it hits my brain out into the camera. Don't even currently 100% remember what I just got done saying. So I probably left some things out. If I did, please drop them in the comments. Please add your thoughts. If there's things that you do to make sure that you are teaching the right stuff, that you are validating your information, make sure to drop that in the comments and let's have a discussion about the ways that we can do better because the rising tide raises all ships. As we work together and share our information, everybody gains. That's the point of these videos. I share anything that I have, hoping that my struggles, my tribulations, my failures allow everybody, or at least the people who watch this channel, to learn from them. Why am I the only one who gets to learn from them? If we, if we have those failures, look at military context. You got people who go out and they are trained to go to war, but they've never been to war. So how do they have that knowledge? Because people who have been to war come back and they say, here's things that worked, here's things that didn't work. These are things that we did well. These are things that we didn't consider that became a problem. Here's how we address that problem. We think we could address it better this way, but we didn't think of that at that time. Learning from all of that makes them more successful at going out and applying that information immediately and then picking up where they left off, standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, and seeing so far. That is how we go and continue to cyclically build higher and higher and higher rather than everybody starting from scratch. If we never share our failures, then other people are forced to feel that failure before they learn from it. If I share my failure with you, if I have something in my life that fails and I share it with you and what I learned from it and how I plan to approach it or how I've been able to approach it, thusly you don't run into that situation, but then you share your own failure that I haven't experienced then we both have learned in less time. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Anyway, if you like these kinds of videos, you can watch another one right here. I've got a, that Dojo Sessions playlist right here. And if you want to subscribe, hit that bell right here. I'm Ken, this is KenFu TV, and I'll catch you in the next one.